John, let me just start off our year. All right, this is our first episode of the year, and I just got to start off. I say, I gotta say, I love you. Okay, I love you. I love what we're doing. I love, and you know, everyone was so pessimistic about last year, like, oh no, last year was so bad or whatever. But this new 2021, new episode, new year, new me. Okay, and now we're trying everything, and now we're going to be more ambitious than ever. We're going to do everything that we, we possibly can to make this best podcast in the world. Okay, I'm just like, boom, just like, <laughs> so full of flames and going, and it's going to be awesome. Okay, and it's just going to be awesome. We're going to keep up this energy, and we're going to do it for every movie that we're talking about. Movies, we love movies. All right, any more movies? All right, and we're gonna make movies. Okay, John, you and me. All right, we're going to the bank tomorrow. Getting a loan, fifty million. All right, we're gonna make this movie tomorrow. All right, that's what's gonna happen. Okay, and listen, we got great credit. We can do it. We can do it. All they need is the credit, bro, baby. Like, if I get the credit and you get the credit, we can do it. We can go. We can go forward, and we're gonna do it. And this is our year, twenty twenty one. This is our year. All right, are you ready? Guys, I just want to talk to you about drug use. Uh... <laughs> I'm crashing. John, you got me down. I'm not feeling down. I'm, I'm not sorry. Feeling up. I'm, I'm sorry. Up. We need to keep up the energy. Keep up yeah, the pace. But, Greg, it's hard. It's hard, okay? 2021 isn't remarkably different from 2020. It's almost as if time is an illusion. What is happening? <laughs> I don't know. If anything, if this proves anything, we need to get rid of the Gregorian calendar. Mm. Not just. I think it's the Gregorian calendar's fault. Yeah, not just. We should go by the Mayan one. <laughs> that one ended in 2012, and, you know, we can start fresh. Yeah, no, why don't we just change everything? <laughs> Again, as you said, time is an illusion. So I think we should change the metric time. It makes so much more sense. Than, than our imperial yeah. time units. I mean, 12, <laughs> who came up with that? Um. I know I hate saying this, but I have to. One of my favorite tweets is mm-hmm. um, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, someone tweeted, while we're rethinking everything, paper covering rock, what is that? <laughs> I, I wanted to repeat one of my favorite jokes, and they said, um, in light of recent events, which I don't even want to dwell on, I mean, just because this wasn't even yeah. like, I don't know, the 10th blackest day in American history, so. <laughs> but somebody did tweet a funny missive and well played december 40th 2020 (laughs) what i love is the fact that that phone call with the uh, georgian official over the election you know that like corrupt call where they're like oh he should wait what was that oh that that happened over 48 hours that happened this week (laughs) that happened this week (laughs) no john it was over 48 hours ago it's it's lost the time like tears and rain it's dead yeah Like Trump tweets, just gone, yeah. just gone into the ether forever. All those broken links, yep. forever gone. I hope you screenshotted them. I hope you oh, went to I the did. internet archive. Yeah. It, it, I'm opening up a presidential library of just the tweets. Um, <laughs> but anyway, go on. We'll we'll get to that later, John. What what were you going to okay. say? Or I, I did you you basically are, are we're in agreement. We don't need to talk about the recent events because it's just too depressing and it was so predictable. And I'm just sick of how uh, reactive Americans are. Where the, uh, how could this have happened? Oh, this isn't who we are. We've this is just who we've been acting like for the past 400 years. I'm so confused. Yeah, I think it's because America is soft, and mm. this feels like the first time. Like I don't know, this happens in France every what two weeks? <laughs> I guess that's also <laughs> <Yeah>. true. <laughs> And he also, it's because they have good labor unions. Yes. That's why. And also, if you broaden your perspective, like, A, not only is this, like, not even the 10th worst day in American history, but this also happened literally a month ago in Poland, in mm-hmm. uh, Kyrgyzstan, in, like, innumerable other countries. Um, there's a farmer strike going on in, in India right now. Um, and it's as if... <sighs> but, Greg, that's one of the poor countries, not here in America. <laughs> We're enlightened here. We're better than most people. I know, because I, I moved from air-conditioned uh, house to air-conditioned office to air-conditioned house, and I get uh, in affordable stuff that's built off the backs of everybody else in the world, and yeah. just this lightness has turned my brain into fucking gazpacho, and now I can't, and the second anything changes or gets hard,
hard. I just freak out and can't. Uh, excuse me. I can pay someone below minimum wage to drive their groceries to me, and now you're telling me that there's an insurrection happening? I'm so confused. <laughs> I'm just sick of how, like, Americans are just, like, lulled into this complacency where it's like, oh, everything's fine until it's not. And it's like, what happened? It's like it's like just a constant Pikachu meme where it's like, oh, you know, that's stupid fake. Yeah. I hate, well, I, I hate it here. I hate it here on planet Earth. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a planetary problem. Um, I'm sure it has nothing to do with our temperatures uh, increasing every minute, every year. But uh, you know, I don't know. You and I aren't equipped to deal with it. I t- I'll tell you one thing: we are equipped to deal with, and that's the arts. That's mm-hmm. that's aesthetics. That's uh, the movies, which is what ostensibly this podcast is about. Um, mm-hmm. It's about appreciating art, or, or not appreciating it, depending on... Uh, that's what we're here to adjudicate. Welcome to the Aspiring Snobs podcast. I'm Greg, mm-hmm. and I'm here with my very special guest. Um, <laughs> guest he co- he's, he's very special. Yeah. I love you, and you're very special. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, we love him, and he's very special. This is my twin brother, John. <laughs> Say hello, John. <laughs> hello, John. And the, the purpose behind this podcast is to... Um, build up our film Bonafides and catch up on classic movies that either one of us or both of us haven't seen yet. Um, mm-hmm. this, um, this definition sometimes broadens to cult classics or movies um, that have really captured the popular imagination. And now we're going to turn to one that I think in a not-so-recent not vintage, maybe one as we were growing up, this was in the dorm, this was a poster in every dorm room, in every guy's dorm room in America at one time or another. Now it'll get you put on a list of possible sex offenders and, um, I don't know, just a, a big eye emoji pointed at you. Um, John, do you want to tell us, tell the people what that film is? Well, yes, we were hoping that, you know, we, we need to learn some professionalism because we want to pretend that this is a professional podcast. Uh, don't go by audience size because obviously <laughs> then you know that we're not a professional podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but again, we're trying to learn some professionalism. So we thought we'd, we'd do some deep cleaning. And so that's why we reserved this week to revisit Léon, Le Professionnel. I like these calm little moments before the storm. It reminds me of Beethoven. Can you hear it? It's like when you put your head to the grass, you can hear it crawling. You can hear the insects. Do you like Beethoven? Couldn't really suck. I'm gonna play you something. Or as we say in English, Leon, the professional. <laughs> the professional. Leon. <laughs> So it's funny that uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up is um, we were commiserating with some of our friends over stuff we got over Christmas, and uh, they got this Commiserating? Poster. Wait, that's not the right word. You were just conversing, not commiserating. Conversing. Yeah. <laughs> What's commiserating? What's the difference? Uh, commiserating is about mourning. It's like as if you're oh. lamenting. Yeah. Commi- commiserating, oh, really? if we're going by literal definitions, obviously words have no meaning anymore, so you can say whatever you want, mm-hmm. but co- commiserating implies some kind of like lament or mourning. Uh Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, oh, yeah, okay. you, were, you were talking with your friends. Sorry to interrupt and be talking pedantic. With my friends. And one of the things that they got for as a Christmas gift was this poster, like a hundred movies to see before you die. Yeah. Blah blah blah. Standard stuff. And I was looking at it like more closely and being like, this is such a weird collection of movies. You've got the Grand Budapest Hotel. You've got Singing in the Rain. You've got Lawrence of Arabia. You got Leon the Professional. Who would like? Who would have interest in seeing all these movies together? And then I realized, oh, these are all movies we do for the podcast. Yes. <laughs> 
Now people are thinking that we probably decide based on that poster alone, but, you know. No, who knows? <laughs> well, yes. I'd say you and I represent a certain audience. Uh, this is when, I'll confess, obviously something you're not uh, attuned to in the audio format, but you may not believe uh, John and I are white. Uh, we're mm. white males in the millennial bracket, I guess. Not that generations mean anything. Um, so th this has a certain appeal to that, and I think it's because this is a, a somewhat more sophisticated action movie, or um, mm -hmm. as as we'll learn, the director himself uh, was a little bit less con less um, concerned with the substance, but more the look. Or as they say in yeah. French, les look. <laughs> so yeah. this is a very... Well, also, like given the broader context, this was kind of a trend that was happening in the 90s, which was the kind of sophisticated crime action movie kind of borne out by the, the career of one Quentin Tarantino, I would say. You think so? He's the okay. one who kind of... I, I I would like to kind of put put all the blame on him. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, uh, but you know, you look back and you know you see the careers of Luc Besson and Guy Ritchie, and you can't really say that they probably wouldn't have the careers or done the kind of movies they did if it wasn't for this. Like, oh, we're doing elevated, you know, crime schlock here. Well, uh, technically, among them, Luc Besson came first. He had success oh, okay. in in France in the '80s, and I think this mm. is either his first or second English language film. Interesting. So, yeah, I. So I, I I know it's easy to <laughs> pin it on Quentin Tarantino. He he's responsible for a lot of terrible crime movies uh, that brought this mm -hmm. this little kind of uh, aloofness or like uh, brash style to it. Um, mm -hmm. But this one has all those hallmarks. It's the early '90s, um, and, <laughs> and and I'm amazed didn't come to us uh, via Josh Weinstein because it has some other like subject matter that uh, mm. well I don't, you and I might not be equipped to <laughs> deal with or might want to touch with a ten foot pole. But first, let's let's look at the style. Itself. Let's look at um, let's look at the again aesthetics of the film. Uh, this is a this is a film about a hitman, um, as as a lot of movies in the '90s were. Who's very good at his job, as we see in the opening scene. He's like a superhero. He's like Batman. He's coming out of every corner and and does his yep. job. They can't find him, and then he pops out and he yeah. kills a bunch of people, and then he pops away again. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's it's very it's a little over the top, but also you know grounded enough that you know you you kind of realize that oh these are real people and. It's not cartoonishly, you know, violent, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, impactful, I would say. Yeah, and so uh, that is, uh, that his competence in terms of cleaning, in, in air quotes, assassinating people, uh, mm -hmm. is contrasted with a very kind of quirky personal life. He's got no friends, no family. All he does is take care of a houseplant and drink milk, basically, um, mm -hmm. and do push-ups. Uh. And he can't read, as we'll find out. <laughs> He's illiterate. Well, he can't read English, I they, he's played by Jean Reno, who is, I think, the perfect actor for this material, because like Keanu Reeves and a few other action stars, he may not like uh, personally emote a whole lot, but he has that neutral mask, that blank slate, that you know, mm. that face that you can immediately like project yourself onto. Um, it's it's the perfect kind of face for like schlock, like and again, like Keanu Reeves, he does like a lot of kind of like schlocky material, yeah. but again, because he has such a blank face, it conveys a sense of seriousness. There's no winking to it, so the audience kind of takes it seriously by you know proxy. So, yeah, yeah, he's good. He's good in this. He's good in this. Role. Yeah, but it's from here we're introduced to two things that one I think that makes makes the film beloved, and one which makes it cringy. Um, mm. Let's get to the the beloved part first, and that's we're introduced to our primary villain, played by Gary Oldman. And if there's mm. one thing that Luke Besson has really benefited from his career, not just a sense of style and constructing movies very well, it's also um, letting Gary Oldman do whatever he wants in front of the camera. Mm. And that's that's certainly <laughs> the case here. Mm. I I think it's it's funny because you compared it to some other like 
fi- uh, action films from the period. And I was thinking of like Die Hard or Passenger 57 or any of the imitators, any of the Die Hard on X on X thing. Mm-hmm. And they're all like um, European sophisticates. They're all smarter than our action hero, and that's how they seem to have the upper hand. Um, here, mm-hmm. our villain has the upper hand by just being so impulsive and crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's introduced by, I think he's singing a, a Mozart piece to himself. First, he's introduced in terms of the style, like um, perfectly framed from the back. It's like mm-hmm. mysterious. It's like that as an audience like I, I don't want to project what i'm doing on audiences but when you film from behind you kind of like want to want to see like what's what's going like peering around the corner and see what's going on there and i felt like i, I kind of got that in this in this first shot here um but then he starts sniffing his target or something <laughs> which i believe was improvised by oldman and yeah there's just a lot of other light like he starts opining about how much he loves classical music he loves like he he thinks you know, Mozart's boring, but he likes Beethoven because Beethoven is loud and brash. And in contrast with his personality as someone who is clearly unhinged yes. and uh, addicted to drugs. What drug is that? A f- amphetamine of some kind, I assume? No, no, no. That's, that's the, the calming down drug. That's the, that's the, oh. that's the downer. I see. So okay. I think he's he's got this, um, I, don't, I don't know, this condition that uh, causes this erratic behavior. And the drug actually helps him out and helps him carry it out, mm. carry out um, whatever business yes. he needs doing. So. And of course, he's he's a very busy person because not in between his bouts of taking drugs and being a drug lord, he's also a police officer. So hey, yeah. how how prescient! Yeah, again, we couldn't. Who could have known in 1994 that the police could have uh, been bad? <laughs> I know. What evidence? Just ask Rodney King <laughs> or O.J. Simpson. Anyway, um, <laughs> framed by the way, I think I think you and I will agree. John, go ahead and mm. confirm. I see you nodding your head. Yes, yes, you agree. Uh, well, no, I was, I, you know, it was Mark Furman, the hero cop, Mark Furman, <laughs> who's really the victim. Yeah. You don't like Beethoven. You don't know what you're missing. Overtures like that get my juices flowing. So powerful. But after his openings, to be honest, he does tend to get a little fucking boring. That's why I stopped. <laughs> Toss the apartment. You're a Mozart fan. I love him too. I love Mozart. It was austere, you know. But for this kind of work, he's a little bit light. So I tend to go for the heavier guys. Cool. Dude, what the fuck are you doing, huh? Man, keep your bomba cop mouth shut. Check out Bronx. He's good too. But in any event, that's that's what makes the movie beloved. And again, I think a happy accent too, because we mentioned that John Renault's performance, uh, very stately, um, not very exaggerated. And you know, who knew that Gary Oldman's performance would be so gonzo that um, that you know would be it would stand 
kind of stand in perfect contrast or like the inverse to our hero. So good stuff there. Mm-hmm. So that's what's beloved about the film. Now what's what's cringy? Now what, what will turn you off mm-hmm. immediately? Our villain, his name's Norman Stansfield, um, is trying to get back at a, a low-level drug dealer who he feels has cut out some of his some of his stash, some of his supply. And he threatens to come back at noon on and this thing, and he murders the entire family except for one girl, um, a very young, perceptive, uh, let's say mature for her age girl, <laughs> who's played by Natalie Portman. And here things things get a little weird because um, this young girl is has obviously encountered a tragedy, but even before that, she's very worldly. Uh, she comes from let's say a, uh, a less than normal home life. Yes, um, it's implied that her stepmom is some kind of prostitute. Um, she has two other older or one younger sibling, one older sibling. Um, they they live in a very dilapidated apartment. You know they're they're struggling to eke by an existence, and you know it's it's a loud, kind of abusive household. Let's yeah. say. and I don't want to assume what anybody's household is like. So if you mm-hmm. if you didn't say have a father who was a drug dealer and a mother who was a prostitute, please let us know. I mean, because I assume that's how ninety percent of households are <laughs> run these mm-hmm. days. But mm-hmm. that's this. I mean, in Trump's America, <laughs> anything anything's up for grabs. <laughs> that's not true. In Trump's America, it's all uh, YouTube stars and and DoorDash. Delivers. And law and order. <laughs> yeah. And law and order. They're the party of law and order. Anyway, god damn it, we keep getting back on this. <laughs> Anywho, um, yeah, so uh, there's this this massive kind of killing spree where everyone except for um, Natalie Portman's character, Matilda, ends up dead. Uh, she's out uh, buying groceries at the time, and once she sees kind of the aftermath, she kind of slinks by and instead tries to uh, hide in Leon's apartment. Um, Leon kind of is hesitant to let her stay, but obviously he's, he's a softie at heart. So Mm -hmm. he lets her in and, um, the rest of the movie, that's basically the inciting incident. The rest of the movie is them, their budding relationship and, you know, this trained killer learning how to be kind of a, a fatherly figure, or at least that's, I think that's what it was supposed to be. (laughs) But, uh, like you said, Matilda's a little mature for her age and that, uh, that results in some, uh, awkwardness. Yeah. (laughs) Well, first let's. Let's. I'll mention the first thing that I was put off by is that she's somewhat amoral. Like immediately, mm-hmm. like she's acquainted with Leon before this, and she immediately wants to do what he does, which is cleaning, i.e., killing people. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like, not, not, well, she also she has a revenge motivation as well. Well, d- well, it's not just that. She seems very eager, like not just to avenge her brother, but also say like, I want to do what you do. Um, which I don't know. It just seems like odd to me. It didn't. Me- it didn't make her me like her character, or it just didn't feel real. Like even. I think ask any like twelve year olds like yes they can be I don't know demonic sometimes but they I don't think they're that amoral or something or it just didn't I don't know like that it her motivation there like her her motivation to avenge her one brother I understood it's like the the animosity she had for her father and her mother and her sister she's like oh I didn't care about them it's I'm glad they're dead and um <laughs> you know Leon I want to do what you do I want to you know snipe people with impunity or not with impunity or whatever but like kind of um <laughs> i don't know um care carelessly extinguish the life of people if i need to for work and <laughs> kind of rub me the wrong way but then like they do at some point they do like um as you said develop this bond like um she wants to play a game with him and they play charades and a few other things um but yeah it it's it, some of these things take a turn like um 
like, oh, in this game of charades, it's a celebrity guessing game. I know what I'll dress up as. Uh, Madonna and sing like a virgin. <laughs> or well, Marilyn Monroe like... and sing that uh, sultry happy birthday, Mr. President song. Yeah. Yeah. It's also just kind of weird because I was like, I bought the Madonna thing because I'm like, oh, she's 11. It's 1994. She would know who Madonna is. Yeah. But then she does Clark, not Clark Gable. Singing in the Rain yes. and Charlie Chaplin and <laughs> Marilyn Monroe. I'm like, she wouldn't know who these people are. Yeah. <laughs> this is clearly... And of course, that's also the point because, you know, Leon doesn't know who they are either because he's obviously, like, just kind of not part of that world and yeah. he's also, like, slow. He's kind of, you know, coded to be a little slow, so... Yeah, I, the, uh, Gene Kelly. That's the one I'm thinking. Yes. Of. He he thinks it's Gene Kelly because again he went to a movie and he saw Singing Rain. Ah, oh, the power of movies <laughs> connects people. Great, indeed. I I guess I I didn't take it as slow. He's also an immigrant, like so. I I just assumed he was functionally illiterate, illiterate in English. Um, I guess that's another form of their bond. She she agrees to teach him how to uh, read and write, whereas he <laughs> learns how to uh, snipe people and get away with murder, essentially. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think it even trade there. But yeah, you're right. It's I thought like Madonna had so many hits like after that. Like she could have chosen like the Like a Prayer video or Vogue for instance. Like it That's was it's point. the Like a Virgin, yeah, and the the Marilyn Monroe thing. I was just like, yeah, I'm going on a list for renting this movie. <laughs> like yeah. Um cuz it's clearly, it's clearly that... an adult sexualizing a 12-year-old girl. Like Well, no, it's the girl kind of hitting on him and him kind of Oh now, I, now, yeah. Now I'm casting my mind to the the makers behind this movie. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Oh no, obviously the makers of this movie. You know, it's like it's, you know, the classic John Berger example. It's like you paint a naked woman, then you put a mirror in her hand, and you call it vanity. You fucking hypocrite. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, <laughs> it's you know, it's the it's the worker, it's the the writer and the director, obviously, like working out you know his kind of complex feelings. But, you know, like, the whole point of the contrast is that the character, Jean Renaud, doesn't take advantage of the situation. Yeah. Or at least knows that, you know, like, taking it any further than it is is wrong. And also, she uses that in the in the text of the movie, she actually takes advantage of that. There's a moment where she kind of gets his goat by telling the hotel manager, you know, at the time, he assumed that she was his daughter. She goes, no, we're lovers. And then they obviously get kicked out. Mm-hmm. Um, why he, why the hotel manager didn't go any further is beyond me. But hey, it's the big city. Things happen. Yeah. So. Well, he's obviously a member of the Democratic Party and the, and the cabal. Oh, yeah. ho, ho, ho. again, more politics, yeah, Greg. We can't help ourselves. It's so easy. That's why it just came. It just popped <laughs> in my head immediately. So mm-hmm. in any event, yeah, I. It's weird because I do like the structure of the movie. Like they're like a quality action movie. It's well staged. There are setups and payoffs throughout the story. Um, you believe these this kind of um, this kind of mutual relationship that they develop, wherein she teaches him how to read, and she and he takes care of her. Like there's also some moral qualm. Like I did like this moment, and it's one <laughs> that a lot of people don't clock because, um, as you said, John Renault's character is a little slow. He's portrayed as a little bit innocent, despite the line of his work. But at one point when she goes to sleep, he does contemplate like killing her. Um, oh, I didn't. I totally missed that. Yeah, remember like um, this is their first night together, and and he initially like rebuffs her, and even though he mm-hmm. lets her in the door, but um, in the cut that I saw, he does like put the silencer on a thing and go into her room uh, while she's asleep, and I believe he does put mm-hmm. into the gun to her head, but it's very quick. I don't know if I don't know if I saw a different cut or something like that, but. 
Uh, yeah, I don't know if that was in my cut. Yeah. But um, oh. this is the second time I've seen this movie, and even I don't remember okay. that scene. Well, so. there could have been another scene in which they're cut. There's there's a lull in the action, and uh, Natalie Portman's character is lying down in the bed, and she t- does say, like, I think I'm in love with you, uh, Leon. <laughs> that, uh, that scene I do yeah. remember. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, I think it's also maybe that scene is kind of important because it, again, like the whole kind of quandary he's faced with is that he is a hitman, but it's like he still has morals, like, you know, no women, no children, no innocence, yeah. you know? And so obviously if you're a hitman or any kind of uh, person who's involved in wet work, it's like you do kind of have to, you know, draw your boundaries or write your lines and things like that. So that's obviously something that comes up in a lot of, you know, productions that involve, you know, assassins in some way or the other. So Yeah. Or like, yeah. again, I compared it to Batman because the setup is essentially the opening scene it felt right out of um that scene in batman begins like uh they're they're um a, a coterie of bad guys. where are the other drugs going <laughs> no i meant <laughs> i meant in batman begins as a coterie of uh guys around the shipping docks and and uh they get taken out one by one he says where are you is <laughs> here swear to me <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap between two performances. <laughs> He's stealthy. I, you're watching the wrong. You're taking around with the wrong elements of Batman. Okay. <laughs> oh, you're right. My bad. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Batman's right. such a complex a bit, character. Yes, he is. Sorry. He's the greatest character in all of Western canon. Yeah, like Leon is. <laughs> Alpha team, final position. We're ready to go. Be careful. I should say, in spite of, in spite of those cringy elements, as an action movie, like this is working. This is doing mm-hmm. this is doing like an A plus job in terms of style and pacing. Like so, I, I say it's an action movie, but there are only a few like I'd say action heavy scenes. The rest of the time, it yeah. is kind of more of a, a crime drama or thriller. Um, mm-hmm. Because while we're watching this, we're also watching um, Gary Oldman's character kind of get the jump on them, or Matilda goes off on her own and tries to, you know, figure out the or enact her revenge herself rather than, you know, having to do it with uh, Jean Reno's character's help. So mm-hmm. um, it's. I mean, you're, but you're right. You kind of like picked the the finest praise, but also the most damning note about this movie is the fact that it is just an action movie. And honestly, rewatching it, I kind of forgot how thin it really is. Yes. <laughs> um, it's very lean. Uh, there's not a lot kind of going on under the surface unless you want to like really overly examine the kind of sexual politics in this movie, which I don't really want to. So, uh, but other than that, you know, besides the Gonzo or you know, perfectly cast 
characters. I, you know, there's really not a lot going on beneath the surface of this movie. No, I was surprised to see that it was shot like in between other projects that Luc Besson had, because he, I don't know, he's the most in, he was at one point like the most in demand uh, director in Europe, um, mm. and we'll talk about why he isn't in a moment. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think this project came together very quickly, and it's almost not miraculous, but very impressive, like how well it does work. Um, even if there isn't a whole lot going on. Yeah, you could say, like, the only thing thematically going on is maybe, like, uh, like uh, something that's been explored in a lot of other... Like, the, the authorities actually are the evildoers. Like, the DEA is mm-hmm. the one actually pushing the drugs, um, which um, obviously obviously our authorities, like the DEA or CIA, would never do. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting from that point of view. But um, as you said, all the all the pleasures are very simple ones, and there's not a lot to like, kind of get deep down um, into like into characters. I I think the most interesting one was the casting of Danny Aiello as uh, as Leon's boss, because um, mm-hmm. there's not a lot to it. Um, I thought he would have either like double crossed him, like when he brings up this this imp- not the implication, but the proposition of like, oh, I'll hold on to your money for you. Like I'm like a bank, only you know banks don't get knocked. <laughs> yeah, over so it's like, yeah, it's, it, it's kind of playing with the a little bit of ambiguity there. Is like, is he genuinely affectionate and cares about Leon, or is he taking advantage of him? Yeah. Um, and the movie never really kind of gives us a straight answer on that <laughs> <No>. <laughs> because uh, you know once Matilda is kind of left to her own devices, you know, it's up to Daniela once again to be like, I'll take care of your money for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it it's kind of left evident that she's going to follow in Leon's footsteps to a certain extent. There's, again, there's a little ambiguity because she does eventually go back to school and she takes that plant that he's been caring about so so deeply and then he she plants it so that it can grow roots outside and be free and be free of this life. <laughs> um yeah, I don't know what you've thought about the ending or, you know, if you kind of thought the ending was kind of like cynical or hopeful or whatnot. Well, but. yeah. Well, first, I want to, I, I guess the biggest action arrives just before that. Um, they're kind of locked in the in this like New York City apartment. I could see like it's the movie's influence on the Matrix in that particular scene when they're like hiding in the walls and and mm-hmm. uh, Morpheus fights Agent Smith. I don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm referencing a more popular movie to let people know what, what it's actually like. So. <laughs> But yeah, but yeah, it's a little ridiculous. Um, I I don't know, like something like some things don't like line up in your head. Like even though like the way that Leon escapes is uh, kind of the Hannibal Lecter way of like disguising himself as a as an NYPD like SWAT officer, including with the big big mm-hmm. ass mask. Again, perfect um, perfect action movie bait and switch <laughs> when you have to disguise yourself. Thank thankfully you find a guy with the same fitting clothing. Um, <laughs> I don't know how he knows that he's going to run into uh, Stansfield either. Um, that seems to be part of the plan. And I mean, I don't think he originally intended that. I think he had a backup plan in case that happened. Um, obviously, he also knows Stansfield's reputation, so he, I think he can kind of assume that, it, like, <laughs> I don't know how he anticipated Stansfield would get right up into his face. Yeah, <laughs> but... <laughs> Or that he could hand um, them the the ring on a pulled grenade or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, so at the, it makes for it makes for an ex- spectacular explosive ending. Yes. So you know, you're not supposed to question. Yeah. Versus just to sit there and enjoy it. So. Yeah, and so I I like the final ending in which yes, like she, she um, Natalie Portman's character returns to school. She takes the houseplant that he's been caring for, and Leon does. It does impart that yes, he'd like to you know have a family and plant roots in, in spite of his like currently solitary 
existence or something. So it, yeah, it seems like kind of simple pleasure, simple motivations and simple payoffs to those, to those goals. Mm-hmm. Um, so as like simple storytelling, it works. Um, so it works for me and you're not like conscious of like the little nitpicky things or I don't know, I don't, <laughs> you're casting out of your mind. Um, the, the grossness of Natalie Portman's character or the motivations behind it or the grossness behind Luke Besson and why he'll hopefully never make a film again. So, Well, Greg, come on. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> yeah, so Luke Besson, we should probably explain, is a hugely talented filmmaker. Leon the Professional is a, is a quality film uh, along with a few other of his movies like The Fifth Element and... Uh, Lucy, like you know, he's uh, okay. Let's let's not over let's not over Gil the Lily. <laughs> he's he's an interesting filmmaker. I wouldn't say that he's talented. <laughs> I I'd say he's he's talented film a talented artist. But like a lot of mm. talented artists, um, uh, uh, checkered personal history. And now um, in 2018, he got ac- he got accused of rape um, mm. by several women. So. I, d- I don't think he'll be making a film anytime soon, um, nor should he. He should probably be in jail um, if those accusations are... Hey, I say I say death of the author, okay? We can still enjoy this movie completely without thinking about the true authorship, okay? We are we are absolved of all response... Oh, hold on, hold on, I'm getting a call. What's that? Oh, oh, hi, Roland Barthes, how are you? Wait, that's not how death of the author works? What? You mean I can't just say that, oh, the artist is nothing and we can completely... John, who's on the phone? Effect. John, who's on the phone? It's, it's Roland. It's my friend Roland oh, okay. Barthes, okay? Okay, okay. Well, you're a piece of shit, and, R- and SZ was hard to read, so fuck you. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> it's my friend Roland. He always bugs me at these times, okay. you know? All right. Well, first of all, rude. Second of all... <laughs> second of all, yes, I think it's a little unfair to not consider... The artists are their motivations, um, particularly uh, a, a, a a man accused of rape also sexualizing a 12-year-old girl in this way. I don't know, just mm-hmm. seems a little gross. So, I don't know, if we could, like, pare that stuff down and just have a perfect 90-minute movie, I, th- I think we're good to go. But, um, I don't know, I don't have the uh, the editing capabilities to do that, um, <laughs> nor the rights holding or anything like that, so. Well, I was going to, like, just throw in if, you know, you're you're terribly concerned about that. There's another movie he wrote, but he didn't direct a few years ago called Columbiana. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that movie? Yeah, with, with uh, Zoe, Zoe Saldana. Saldana. Yeah, in Columbiana. It's, pr- yeah. it's pretty much the same movie, okay. <laughs> um, except it's Zoe Saldana this time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he combines both, you know, her father ends up getting killed when she's a little girl and she grows up to be this, you know, hyper-efficient assassin. Yeah. And so you get, it's very thin, but, you know, it's it's got good actors and good pacing and good action sequences. So, you know, if, if you're interested in a movie much like Leon the Professional, then I would check out Columbiana. And that way you can maybe absolve yourself from enjoying a Luc Besson film a little bit. Yeah. He still wrote it, but, you know, he didn't have anything, you know, much to do yeah. with it as much. So, And she doesn't meet, like, I don't know, like an 11-year-old boy who's like... <laughs> <laughs> no, and again, like... When when we do see her as like a little girl, like eleven years old, mm-hmm. she's not sexualized in any way. She doesn't like you know dress okay. up oh, as Madonna. Phew. All right, <laughs> I know. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> she's just in a schoolgirl outfit for most of that oh, time. Boy. Anyway. Yeah. Oh
Stansfield. At your service. So, anyway, um, Leon the Professional, quality flick. Um, I could see why it was on so many uh, dorm room walls. Its poster was on so many dorm room walls for so many years. But now, uh, yeah, a, a, a little bit, a little bit gross um, these days. Mm. Um, probably, you know, I, I don't know. Watch it at your own risk, I guess. Um, <laughs> Torrent it or or don't. I don't know. Again, if you don't want to be on a, any lists because you rented this movie and want to see a twelve-year-old uh, Natalie Portman. Uh, all dolled up, as it were, but uh, I, I don't know. Again, qual- I mean, people still film. like Taxi Driver, so what? <laughs> Fair enough, I guess. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Is it <sighs> is it Art's responsibility to to plumb those depths to look at the, I don't know, look at the uncomfortable things or? <sighs> well, I'm glad you asked because <laughs> I have a perfect answer for you. <laughs> <Yes>. um... <laughs> You should have known. Uh, you should have known that you words. would have been broadsided like that. Come on, John. Craig, two words. It depends, okay? <laughs> That's my definitive no, statement on that. that pl- I, I need one word answer. Yes or no. John, go. <laughs> Maybe. There's my one word answer. All right. You're in the McLaughlin group now. <laughs> should you know, Art I'll, be, I'll, I'll, be plumbing- I'll only answer to one person. That's Charlie Rose, the okay. most respected journalist in the world. <laughs> Should Art be plumbing no. the depths of depravity? <laughs> Tony, Tony Blakely, your thoughts. <laughs> Wrong! <laughs> so you're doing more of a Donahue impression, no, okay, I think. <laughs> I don't know. God, we're, we're dating ourselves. We're talking about <laughs> movies that were popular in 1994 and the McLaughlin group. <laughs> Craig, what are you saying? <laughs> we're not old. How dare you? <laughs> I know, you're right. John, let's let's um let's bring our audience back. Our audience of I don't know twelve year olds or people who um like us don't have don't remember anything uh, from eight minutes ago. If, if that's the case, they sure haven't remembered uh, the movies that came out over Christmas Day and were widely available because theaters were closed. They were, they came to us via streaming services. So um, mm-hmm. for this uh this signature spe- section that we have, let's look at uh, some recent releases. Um, because uh, we do that every week in. Uh, the segment that I'm talking about now. And Why do you sound so unsure of yourself? Because I'm trying to set it up so that we can do our sound drop for Spotlight. 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 Everyone! Hey, there it is. Yes. You did it. I, I'm a professional broadcaster, okay? Oh, okay. I've been paid to do voice. If you can believe that, I've been paid to do voiceover before. So, all right, some nuts oh to you. Oh, my God. Did, you, did they ask for their money back? What no. Happened? I'm doing great. Okay, fine. <laughs> so, John, I mean, yes, we didn't have to schlep to the theaters this time, so good. Um, mm-hmm. However, let's let's look at the two products that have entered the, the film discourse lately, and I think I've already left it. I think this uh, current events yeah. is, is completely... <laughs> We're already way behind. Yeah. <laughs> and current events is also completely cast aside, like, uh, who can think about pop culture in these circumstances, either way? But, um... <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Let's catch up a little bit uh, first on what I think is a, I, I don't know, an interesting movie. Let's call it um, mm. certainly an, exa- an exhaustive one. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about what's available on HBO Max right now. Um, coming straight to your eyeballs. You don't need to go to the theater anymore, which uh, is probably a good thing. And that's uh, Wonder Woman, 1984. John, it's still get- it's still leading the box office though. It's still ranked in three million dollars somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Woof. Some people paid and risked their lives, you know, risked catching COVID-19 for the sake of seeing Wonder Woman 1984 in theaters. Gosh, I hope they got their money's worth. <laughs> I, I believe they did. I believe. Okay. <laughs> Just for sheer amount of film, sure. Yes, I think for for the volume. For quantity, you can't, you can't deny. <laughs> I got a question for you, John. Hmm. <laughs> Do you remember um, the original Wonder Woman film that came out just three years ago? And do you think the makers behind this movie saw it? And <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, part of part of the the joy I would call it of watching a, a Warner Brothers picture yes. is that they're very much like they like to position themselves as like a director's first company. Yeah, but they obviously can't really truly believe that. So <laughs> like, and you know, you always hear behind the scenes, like even Patty Jenkins has been out front about this, about the original Wonder Woman. Like, you know, there was a lot of internal debates about what we should do. And, but so it's, it's fascinating sometimes, like after you watch a, a Warner brothers production and trying to figure out, okay, who greenlit this portion of the movie and who greenlit that portion of the movie. Yeah. And how did they figure out to conjoin it all together? <laughs> it's, you know, it's like a Lego, a Lego construction made of every piece in the box. Yeah. Even though it's like three different sets. So, yeah, I think the answer to that is that they didn't, or they mm. just learned like uh, the morning before they started shooting. Like, cause it's clear that yes, like Patty Jenkins and, and all the other producers like had one vision behind this movie. And then Warner brothers had their own vision and, and like said, like throw the throw this in there, but we want to let you do what you want to do, but make sure that it integrates these things. Um, yeah, and maybe even the cut we watched, yeah. the one that ended up, you know, in theaters and in HBO Max, there is also the possibility that they cut out a lot of other connective tissue to the larger universe because a lot of stuff just kind of feels like left out there. And I've I've been reading some you know nerdier correspondents who were like, well, you know, they could have been trying to tie that into like you know Hawkman for all we know, and they just decided to ah, screw it and they cut it out. So now it feels very superfluous. Okay. So you never know, like, because the weird thing about this movie is yes, it's trying to fit into the broader you know universe of DC films, but also like not because <laughs> is again, it? They, yeah. Didn't, they they haven't figured out who's playing Batman yet. They don't know what they're doing with Superman. Yeah, I didn't think they bothered with that anymore based on. The, jo- the success of the Joker movie, and they're just going to do, like, they're just going to take these beloved characters and do whatever the hell they want with them. Yeah, but they also want to have that billion-dollar culmination movie, so they need uh, yeah. to have, like, I think they're anticipating Flashpoint to be that. Like, oh, yeah, like, everyone's going to line up to see Ezra Miller play the Flash again. <laughs> uh, uh, sure, yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, but um, I said the word exhaustive, because that's what this movie is. It's, it's exhaustive and exhausting, um, because... I don't know, first things first, I remember from the first movie, they have flashbacks to when Diana Prince was younger. Mm-hmm. And they said, like, uh, Diana, you're too powerful. Like, we have to keep you, like, kind of locked away or something. Or, like, you can't check. Yeah. yeah, you can't, yeah, you can't use your, like, full powers or whatever. Um, but in this movie, it opens with, like, she's allowed to participate in uh, the Mascara Ninja Warrior or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Which has no bearing or purpose. Like that's that's the thing. Like it's a... it sets up the gold armor. That's the only Gosh. purpose. <laughs> and to set up the moral. 
don't cheat and truth is good <laughs> yeah <laughs> so th- this this opening scene kind of sets up some of the or establishes some of the problems we have a it's way too long and i think it's mm-hmm. long because we don't know like what's at stake here like th- like yes diana like obviously wants to compete and win but like I, again i needed to know like why everybody was participating like what's the importance other than just winning and i think mm-hmm. that's that's the kind of idea and it has to impart this this very like kind of ch- children's book um <laughs> moral that like um there are no shortcuts in life like you, you yeah. can't ask for anything or you got to earn it um nothing's mm-hmm. nothing's handed nothing's free and the and truth... they try to they try to tie that into the fact that she has the lasso of truth so it's like you know be honest don't lie or don't cheat because that's lying and you know truth is important you yeah. have to look at the truth and it's like and you could also tie that back to the fact that this is obviously a anti-trump movie yeah i don't know if anyone, anyone else picked up on that <laughs> wait, wait what <laughs> you're telling wait what is it what does a cheetah character have to do with donald trump i don't understand <laughs> Greg, believe it or not, there's another character. If you squint your eyes, you might be able to see a resemblance to. Our I don't. President. I don't know. I don't think so. But um, anyway, that that's our first like opening action sequence. Again, what its purpose is isn't other than to establish like the theme isn't exactly clear. Um, mm-hmm. Our next action sequence is set in a mall, and it's the most convoluted like robbery in the world because like once it goes wrong, then like a guy takes a hostage, and this guy like runs over here, and this guy runs over here, and like what they're, well, they're scrambling, yeah. you know, they're 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 idiots, yeah. you know. This is you know, this is obviously meant to be a smash and grab job, which obviously the the regular police probably could have taken care of. I don't know why Diana yeah. had to pop in because these people are clearly morons, but whatever. Yeah. So. Again, that's emblematic. We can go in and nitpick a little bit more. We won't. We won't. Sp- we'll spare you all that. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's it's so unfocused and so I, I I don't know. Just like like we just talked about a really good competent action film with setups and payoffs. There's like none of that here. Again, it feels like everything was like set up the day of. Like we have that yeah. scene of like um I'm thinking of the scene in the Invisible Jet. Like um there there are two things there. It's like. Um, like the day they started shooting, it's like, <laughs> oh, by the way, Patty Jenkins and the producers of Wonder Woman 1984, you got to integrate the Invisible Jet in this movie. Um, go, <laughs> and then um, <laughs> crap. Uh, what do we do? Uh, oh, we'll, we'll give uh, Gal Gadot or Gal Gadot, however you pronounce her name. Uh, we'll give her this line of dialogue. It's like, um, oh, I have uh, making invisible powers, and I'm just gonna wave <laughs> my hands, and boom, we're there. <laughs> yeah, same thing with the golden armor. You yeah. know, that's obviously a good, you know, visual set piece. They set it up at the beginning of the games, like, oh, this is an important artifact from, you know, the Themyscira. Did, oh, did I they? I just have it. No, did, yeah, I, did I mean, they? I, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about a shot, which is from a young Diana's perspective, mm-hmm. and it's, like, 50 feet away, and none of the, di- like, that's that's all we have is, like, three seconds of, like, the statue. Yeah. To establish, like, the- and then. And then, you know, later Chris Pine asks, hey, what's that? It's, oh, this is gold armor that's very important to our culture, and uh, I might need it later. So <laughs> remember that. Yeah. Um, Why didn't she win? And I think the the original intent was, and, you know, this has been a point of contention. The original point was she was going to use the armor because she's slowly getting depowered throughout the film. Yeah. Because she wished for, you know, Steve Trevor to be back. Oh, my God. And yeah, then... we didn't even mention the wishing rock yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a wishing stone, guys. Yeah. <laughs> 
And uh, you know, and actually, I'm fine with the uh, concept of the wishing stone. I like it. Oh, I yeah, think it's, it's simple. It's storytelling gold right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Monkey's ball. Perfect. Yeah. Like early Twilight Zone episode. You know, Faustian bargain. Perfect. Except when Donald Trump gets a hand, his hands on it. I wish to be the wishing stone. <laughs> Give me wishing powers. <laughs> and then just all logic is thrown to the wayside because now he needs to be the one to grant wishes. And if he doesn't grant wishes, his body starts falling apart. But he still has to make sure that the wishes kind of benefit him somehow. So he has to, like, walk up to people and say, like, hey, don't you wish that I was even richer? And you're like, they go, sure. And then he's fine, healthily, and he's even richer. Yeah. Um, I can see that happening once. Like, not not the, like, five times it happens in the movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, it turns into a joke because, obviously, he can only grant one wish. So he ends up going to people, like, saying, don't you wish I was this, was this way? And he, they go, yeah, sure. But then he already granted that person's wish. So Wait, I, work, yeah, are you so. sure that they can only grant one wish? Because it's the other thing. Like again, it seems like they had no, they they didn't prepare like what the what the heck they were doing. So like they have this concept of the wishing stone. Like oh, but we have this situation where um our yeah. our other villain, our our heavy for the movie Cheetah, like needs a second wish. Like what do we do? Oh, he'll just grant her a second wish, I guess. Or yeah, or that's a good point. Yeah, or like the, the monkey's paw. Like can clearly set up like. Uh, I wish for something, but the stone, but it also takes something away. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. and if you clearly set that up, that's fine. But like the downsides aren't established. Like what, like he's suddenly weak or has these health problems. Like, I didn't know like what that implied or I I don't know. It's like what was taken away from uh, the cheetah's character is that she wasn't nice anymore or something. Yeah. (laughs) She was losing her humanity. So it's like, they could have set it up that she was getting more cat-like throughout the movie, but instead it's literally like, I want to be an apex predator cut to now. She's a cat woman. (laughs) Why? Yeah. And speaking of the cat woman thing, like I think again, wonder woman is a feminist hero. Mm-hmm. And so we want this to be like espouse feminism, like you know, like we want to, uh, I don't know, like again display the strengths of women, but like again, it seems like they didn't think it through. And mm. Diana's sole motivation is like a man, like pining for yeah. this guy, or and again, like we have this cat fight that like women are je- like the stereotype that women are jealous of each other, and they wind up in a <laughs> exactly. little cat fight, and then, so like th- your intention maybe to make this like feminist hero is butting up against like the 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 story which is playing out in stereotypical or you know anti-feminist ways so yeah it just feels it's it's a mess um yeah and again for like what purpose like what purpose does the golden armor serve besides just being like a good shot yeah like like again like i was bringing up like I think in her original cut of the movie, she's losing her powers because that's the monkey's paw for her wish. So she needed the golden armor to kind of make up for that. Mm -hmm. But in this cut of the movie, in this version, she renounces her wish. So she already has her powers back, but then she still uses the golden armor anyway. And again, the golden armor is introduced literally, hey, what's that? (laughs) Oh yeah, I have this suit, golden armor. No, John, you're clearly thinking of the, the golden armor in story terms. It's obviously the golden armor is there to sell toys. That ah. and the invisible jet, like yeah. yeah so right. I'm sorry. we also have these competing visions of like it being mm. a commercial project, but it also wanting to like be a feminist text versus it also wanting to comment on current events versus like also like we have a deadline and we have to you know one wish makes a big wall. Yeah. Oh no, there's big walls dividing people. That's not fair. Yeah, <sighs> yeah, but it's kind of I kind of strangely admire it. You know what I also rewatched, which works a lot more. The la- the Shazam movie they made last yeah. year, and so that kind of works because they obviously can't compete with Marvel, 
And so they tried the grim dark version and that didn't work. So now they're trying to go in this more like pre 1960s like whimsical thing where it's like, oh no, you know, Titano the super ape is yeah. going to destroy Metropolis. So like it works for Shazam because it's like obviously meant to take place in a contemporary setting and it's like, really? We're we're talking to wizards here? Well it's in it's so, around kids too. Yeah, and that's and the other thing. Like Wonder Woman felt humor. like a kid's movie in terms of like yes. it's speechifying, it's like you know, well, and that movie has more of a kind of sense of humor and kind of a winking yeah. kind of attitude to it. So when it does kind of get cheesy, you kind of anticipate it. This movie takes itself so seriously. <laughs> There's no like jokes besides the one sequence where Steve Trevor comes back to the '80s and he's like, "I'm so confused. What is this fashion?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and. You're right. There's there's no real levity, but it's in service of like the most like banal like you know be careful what you wish for or there are no mm-hmm. shortcuts in life and the story doesn't really reflect that like and again its tone is very childlike like we see like Diana like wink at a little girl and she gives gives her like the f- thumbs up or something yeah <laughs> stuff like that I yeah. I mean, which, but again, I kind of admire the fact that we can still have a superhero movie where they have, like, the classic, like, I, I'm going to foil a bank robbery. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of, like, you know, it's not everything has to be, you know, the city's going to be destroyed or something like that. I don't so. know. It's it's not for me. Um, <laughs> okay. I found, yeah, I think the this movie... I didn't hate it, but I, I fully uh, appreciate it. It's yeah. not a good movie, so... <laughs> I find this movie's greatest antecedent is probably Spider-Man 3, which is where the yeah. filmmakers wanted to tell one story and the studio wanted to tell <laughs> wanted to sell toys and, and to force mm-hmm. them to like jam in all this stuff and it's just a complete mess. This is better than Spider-Man 3, I will say. Um, just cuz I uh, think it's better. I made. don't know. It doesn't have a jazz solo moment, yeah. so I don't know. <laughs> you can't really say that this is a better movie. So. No, but this has an 80s dress-up montage. <laughs> That's it. Oh god damn, you're right. You're right. <laughs> It's hard to, you know, pick your poison. Yes, yeah. <laughs> different strokes. Mm-hmm. It's also interminably long. It's way too long. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting. It's more interesting to talk about, unfortunately, than I would say. Soul, the latest offering from Pixar, because oh really? The problem. The problem is with Pixar movies is the fact that everyone's kind of anticipating a revelatory experience. So when they offer it, it's like, okay, you know, you've you've kept up the standard. All right, perfectly fine. And I think. Like, unfortunately, Soul, from just being a good product and just kind of really well made, no one really wants to talk about it. Or at least it hasn't kind of like turned, you know, entered the cult, you know, cultural context for the wrong reasons that Wonder Woman has because everyone's trying to pick apart and figure yeah. out why this movie is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> but Soul, you know, it's, it's, it's a perfectly adequate movie. So everyone's just kind of like, Pixar does it again. All right, moving on. <laughs> well, I like that. Here, here's one thing. Maybe. This this works against Soul. I actually admired it for this. Um, one thing about Soul that I that I realized we should probably set it up. It's about a guy who um, passes away, and his soul is sent to this like um, not not purgatory or something. Yeah, but this like great before where other souls and and he teams up with another soul who doesn't want to go to Earth when he's obviously motivated to go back to Earth and complete his life. Um, that's a setup. One thing I, I found very refreshing though is that like it didn't feel like the universe was at stake. Instead, it's just, like, one guy's life. And so the story is much smaller. Like, I remember, like, this movie's closest antecedent is probably Inside Out, which also, like, 
looked had a quirky look behind the scenes and it's the same director yeah. and it's Pixar and all that that movie like you know her her emotions are crumbling and you know she's getting on the bus <laughs> and you know like again like it's it's kind of pitched all the way to like you know Mount Everest and back like <laughs> where is this again much smaller it's a it's a very modest guy he's a he's a middle school band teacher but he has aspirations of just being like a um, a, a jazz musician and not playing like huge concerts but instead like you know just kind of living his truth and so I, I found that very refreshing, um, along with a few other things like you could see from, I don't know, like 100 miles away that it's going to play on the same Pixar stuff like, oh, bureaucracy is funny. And yeah, yeah like um, has a long talk with his mother. Yeah. You can't have a Pixar movie <laughs> unless there's a parent child relationship yeah. um, or, or a, a mismatched duo foils like going on this yeah. journey together. Yeah. So um, I, th- I thought it could have worked as like an independent movie. Like I could see this mm. like. Other than maybe like the body switching aspect, um, yeah, I could see this like at Sundance or something, and so <laughs> yeah, I, like there's been kind of a lot of favorable comparisons to like Defending Your Life and uh, mm-hmm. Oh God, and you know like all those movies that kind of have ask like the uh, the the existential questions, like what does it all mean, and then yeah. you have to go back and you know like kind of handling the same kind of material. Um, one of the things that kind of bothers me though. And it's the same thing with, like, Princess and the Frog, where it's, like, Disney making a big point. It's, like, this is an African-American story. Yeah. We're telling, you know, a quintessential... But it doesn't really tackle it all that much. It does... It handles it with, like, kind of a superfluous... Like, he has a scene in a barbershop. He has a good relationship with his barber. <laughs> just like all black people do. <laughs> um, so, yes, like, you're kind of touching on those those touchstones a little bit, but mm. not really kind of, like, getting to anything deeper or a little more kind of thorny about the African-American experience, no. unfortunately. Yeah. Well, not thorny. I'm not saying like that. Th- that's what, that's what the story needs is like to look yeah. at Brutley's brutality and the history of slavery. <laughs> like, obviously that's, that's not what every black story needs. Like for one thing, it needs to be told by actual black people. Like instead it's that, filtered through this true. like family friendly voice from nerds in, in the Bay area. Like that's, <laughs> there's no getting around it. I, I thought you were going to confront something else like princess and the frog. We're seeing this whole hullabaloo like, Hey, Disney's um, showing black representation. It's got our first black hero. And instead, oh, yeah. And then they spend the majority of the story out of their bodies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I'm wondering, like, what's the... Is there something psychological, like, going on, like, at the Disney... Like, maybe at the Disney Corporation or in these storytellers' minds where, like... I, uh, like, I don't know, like, we can't live with this black character. It's like something magical ha- has to happen to change them or something. Like, I, I don't think it's pernicious. I don't think it's, like, antagonistic. No, I think to... it's... No, I think it's... And again, I think it's the exact same problem that disney and the frog had which is we have this kind of generic story and then they end up like you know this quote-unquote colorblind story and then they end up graphing this kind of african-american character on it and so because of that mm-hmm. because it's not built the original story was not designed to be about the african-american experience everything that they added um to it that talks about the african-american spirits feels like a, a window dressing because, yes. like, from the core of the story, the story could be anybody. Like, there's nothing that kind of said that, oh, you know, he needs to be, uh, you know, he's a music teacher. Like, it's called Soul because he's a jazz musician. Do you get it? <laughs> like, yeah. Same thing with The Princess and the Frog. It's like, because of, they like, in post, or, you know, after they figure out the story, oh, let's make it African-American and have it kind of touch on that, then that's why. But because, you know, it wasn't from the roots 
poor choice of words, yeah. <laughs> like an African American story, it doesn't really feel important to it, or you know, it, it feels kind of superfluous. I think I think the other thing too is, and, and I guess we consider this a demerit. Like again, I said, like it doesn't feel like the universe is at stake. It's a very small mm-hmm. story, um, but there are a few other things that don't make it like that's where the the plot or the emotions aren't pitched up to eleven. So yes, we have this great scene where he reconciles with his mother, and you know, he explains his motivation for having this dream. But um, and another character, like kind of like the one voiced by Tina Fey, has this moment where she kind of like um, gives up on life and becomes literally like a lost soul. But there, there isn't these like um, like like Pixar movies in the past. It's not like wringing your tears out like a towel. It's not you know. Yeah. It's not uh, the emotionality of it. It also isn't like pitched to eleven. And also, I was I found it the same with the villain. Um, there is a villain in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. She's voiced by the great Rachel House, um, who you'll she's a character actress. You'll recognize her in a lot of great mm-hmm. movies like Hunt for the Wilder People and and uh, Thor Ragnarok. Oh, she's playing the same exact character from Hunt for the Wilder People. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> Someone who's you know a hundred percent dedicated to the bureaucracy and will not stop at any cost. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but but she's like also a very mild obstacle. She's like functional. Like she yeah. she she brings some laughs out of it, but she's also like functional. It's not like she's a a character that needs to be redeemed or anything like that it's it's more like you know like oh she's a funny aside to what's really going on with the story so it's not it's not working in that way either like say i I was reminded that there was um this charity auction with ratatouille the musical and i was reminded ratatouille is my favorite pixar movie and it's because like this villain this food critic like kind of comes around and has this great monologue and Mm -hmm. some like and that works wonderfully Soul doesn't really like have that. I mean, even though it's a very good personal story that it's telling, um, and it looks beautiful, and they render like New York City wonderfully, like yeah, it's not like a, it's not like the the ten out of ten that we expect out of from Pixar. It's not like, you know, it's not that the stakes aren't as high and the emotions aren't as like wrought and you know all that yeah. stuff. So that's that's why like I don't know like I don't know if that motivates you more to see it. I know it did me initially like. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is good, but yeah, it hasn't it hasn't stuck in my memory like a few other movies have. Um, yeah, recently. it's it's very very good, but I wouldn't say transcendent. Yeah, so which is ironic because you know it's, we're talking about souls here, yeah. <laughs> phantasmagorical <laughs> figures. So <laughs> yeah, it, again, just like Inside Out, like I would say it's on par with Inside Out, which I didn't love. Inside, I like this more than Inside Out, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's pretty much you know operating on the same level where you know you'd get these kind of jelly bean people hopping around in this <laughs> ethereal plane. Yeah. So yeah, like well visualized, well told, you know, great story structure, but yeah, it just kind of just kind of comes and goes. Yeah, in your it's brain, like, a, like yeah. a solid base hit is what it is. Yeah, <laughs> if we're gonna mm-hmm. make baseball analogies, like I consider Ratatouille like a home run. And yeah, like yeah, <laughs> Wally's Pixar, a home run. Yeah, Pixar has been like a like I don't know Hank Aaron in this department. <laughs> like yeah, <laughs> so to see a, like I don't know like late in his career and you know in in Mo- it, for the Milwaukee Brewers instead of the Braves or something, you know, it mm-hmm. it feels a little bit like that. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. In any event, I, I again that concludes the uh, the the recent film discourse. Uh, again, job done. I think we did it. Um, I know we're late to the party, but that's the best time to party, if you ask me. <laughs> when everyone's already drunk. Yep. And you know you've been pre gaming this whole time, so. Yep. <laughs> and everyone's waiting for John and Greg to arrive. Like, where are they? <laughs> <laughs> that's what everyone's asking. Yeah. Hey, where's John and Greg? I know the life of the party. Anyway. Yep. Uh, wait, Greg, hold on. I'm getting another call. It's okay. Roland again. <laughs> Roland Bartz, what do you want this time? What's that? Oh, wait, it's time for Trivia Challenge! Uh, 
yes. I'm not ready, especially not for Roland Bar. It's a guy I've never heard. You, you consider yourself an artiste and you don't know who Roland Barthes is? One of the premier art critics of the 21st century? How dare you? Okay. Sure. Jump. Well, you need, to go to, you need to go to grad school. That's why you, need okay, to, you wouldn't know. Who oh, perfect. I haven't, I haven't parted with enough money, obviously. <laughs> Any hoops. Yeah. Okay, so for this trivia challenge, I've got 10 movies for you. I'm going to give you two stars and you're going to have to name the movie. Now, here's the hint. Yeah. The two stars I am naming have vastly different discrepancies within their age. Okay. So much like, you know, uh, uh, Jean Reno and uh, Natalie Portman, you know, we've got, we've got two people of wildly different ages who okay. are starring in this movie. So I'm going to give you two actors and you're going to give me the name of the movie, okay? Okay. And so All they right. don't necessarily have to be co-stars. They're just in the same cast, basically, right? Or They're, they're kind of top billing, okay. or at least All close right. to top billing. All right, all right. I think right. I think I, I I think I know my young actors. So okay, yeah, uh, you and I have combed Iron to be enough to, to have our brains poisoned by like <laughs> not remembering, say, our family members' birthdays, but you know, to knowing <laughs> which movies Jean Reno has been in. So <laughs> yes, all right. Well, here we go. All right, number one, Dave Bautista and Chloe Coleman. Dave Bautista and Chloe Coleman. I think this is a a recent one. I think this is this movie was shuffled around because of uh, COVID nineteen. Is it My Spy? That is correct. Yeah. Good work. <laughs> All right. Question number two. Dwayne Johnson and Madison Pettis? 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 P-E-T-T-I-S. Pettis. I, I've, I've heard that name is uh, Pettis before uh, okay. because that's uh, it reminds me of Dante Pettis, the football player. And mm. The Rock has been in a football-related movie called where he has to look after a young girl, and it's called The Game Changer. Is it The Game Changer or is it The Tooth Fairy? I'm going with The Game Changer. Is it The Game Changer? Ooh, I'm sorry. Wrong on both parts. It's the game plan. Oh, game damn plan. it. Whatever. Oh, I, whatever. I get partial I wanted credit. to do the tooth fairy, but there's no, like, there's no girl, there's no, like, little kid in that movie. It's yeah. all, like, about the bureaucracy. And he's a hockey player in that one, and that one just strains credulity. Like, yeah. come on. The Rock can't skate. Yeah. And hockey players right. don't look like that. They, yes, like, enforcers <laughs> are, I don't, I don't know, I wouldn't call them, like, cut. <laughs> <laughs> they're not stacked. No, yeah, um, they're not stacked like The Rock is, but anyway. All right, speaking of stacked, number three, Vin Diesel mm-hmm. and Morgan York. All right, Vin Diesel and Morgan York. Well, this is the this this was the uh, the urtext for the uh, mm. action star has to star with a, a silly family, um, at least for the mid-2000s. It's really started with Kindergarten Cop, but of course I'm talking about The Pacifier. Excellent work, Greg. Yeah. That's three for three. I can't stop you. Yep. Well, two and two and a half, because I don't know, like game changer. I don't know where I got that from, but anyway, all right, I'm, I'm on a roll here. Here we go. Let okay. it roll. Let it ride, baby. All right, number four: Mara Wilson and Danny DeVito. Mara Wilson, Danny DeVito. Oh well, obviously that's a '90s classic. We're talking about the mid '90s, aren't we? That's mm. and we're talking about the character name here. It's Matilda. There you go. Look at you. Boom. Can't stop you. I know. It's about time I did well in a trivia challenge. <laughs> He All said right. when he's halfway done and still has <laughs> most of the way to go. All right, number five, Sinbad and Brock Pierce. Oh, come on, another mid-90s classics. One of our favorites, John. This is First Kid. <laughs> yes, that's correct. First I just want to I'm mention. Surprised. I, you know, Sinbad was in so many movies in the nineties. I thought I could trick you yeah. into thinking it was like you know, Rookie of the Year or something. Yeah, I want to mention. I'm going to give special commendation to First Kid because I remember how it ends, and that is the villainous uh, character played by Timothy 
Busfield, um, one of the nicest guys like in the world. He plays a villain in this movie, and he raises out of a fountain and tries to shoot the first kid, but then he gets oh, shot. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's all in slow motion. I think wonderful for a children's movie. <laughs> okay, number six, Burt Reynolds and Norman D. Golden II. Oh, boy. Burt Reynolds and Norman D. Golden II. I think this is another movie we, rent, uh, we rented uh, from Movies on Video in Melrose, Massachusetts. Was it Cop and a Half? Yes, it's cop and a half. Yes, which is a pain in the ass because it's literally, you know, the, the half symbol. Not half like <laughs> H-A-L-F. It's literally a half symbol. Yeah, so how do you search for it? I mean, it's a pain in the ass. I'll yeah. tell you that much. <laughs> and I believe it or not, I don't think Norman D. Golden II went on to an illustrious film career. But, you know. No, at, even after a very po- a positive notice from Roger Ebert, I remember like at the movies, like he gave it a thumbs up. and Oh. Yeah. I, I think to the consternation of Gene Siskel, like what the, what the what the hell are you talking about? This is a nothing kids movie, but he's like, you know, look out for this kid. Um, hopefully, he's gone on to better things than acting. <laughs> All right, number seven: Arnold Schwarzenegger mm-hmm. and Austin O'Brien. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Austin O'Brien. Um, now I'm trying to think of when he's paired with kids. So there's no like lead kid in Kindergarten Cop, but there is in The Last Action Hero. Oh, Greg, I can't stop you. Yes. I can't stump you. You're so good. Yes, <laughs> damn right I am. All right, I've seen none of these movies, by the way. I just know them from IMDb and commercials and other stuff. And uh, Well, it's like once you get the adult actor, it's pretty easy to figure. This yeah. one's also kind of a gimme. Walter, Walter Matthau and Madison Gamble. <laughs> well, another movie that we rented, I think, multiple times for the video store, Dennis the Menace. <laughs> there you go. Live action Dennis the Menace. Yeah. I mean, everyone complains that it's like, oh, everything has to be based on a franchise. In the 90s, they were just live-action everything. Yeah. <laughs> That's all they had. I think they were, yeah, even more creatively bankrupt then than they are now. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> like, at least there are, okay. like, independent, uh, independent, quote-unquote, like, streaming outlets uh, willing to give original stuff a chance. But, yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. All right, number nine, John Ritter and Michael Oliver. <sighs> so this one... This one is a little now before our time. So I sh- we should probably explain all these movies came out in the wake of the success of Home Alone. So they were trying to get a kid actor to be a star and draw more kids to the theaters. This one came out the same year as Home Alone and it's Problem Child. That is correct. Yep. Boom, boom, Goodness boom, gracious. Boom, 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 I can't boom. stop you. All right. Number 10. The final one. Okay. Sylvester Stallone and Estelle Getty. <laughs> well... Crap. So this one, I'm stumped. Not just because you broke your own rules. All right. Hey, getting... I said wide age difference. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Didn't specify direction. Okay. Okay. I thought I thought you were breaking the rules. I thought it would be a child star, and Sylvester Stallone only has the intellect of a child. <laughs> oh, that's rude. He can he can be a, a writer, I guess. Um, question mark. Anyway, uh, Stel Getty. I. It's either. Stop or my mom will shoot or rhinestone. I think I'm going to go with stop or my mom will shoot. Can't stop you, Greg. You were correct. Yes. Stop or my mom will shoot. Boom. <laughs> Boom. Greg, that was a near perfect 10. I'm going to give it to you. I All mean, right. you got 0.5 for the game plan. The game but... changer. Yeah, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, whatever. The Rock is a football player and he's got to look after a kid. Come on. You know, you know how these stories go. <laughs> Classic story about child abandonment. You know, yeah. <laughs> America can relate. Yeah. So anyway, um, if we take nothing else away from this episode, it's to know that I'm perfect and uh, I'm a movie <laughs> expert. And... Uh, I don't know. You're, you're I mean, welcome. My only regret is I tried to sneak in um, the Taxi Driver and The Shining in there, but again, I was going off only like '90s kids movies. So okay. It was really tough. <laughs> I would, yeah. What I don't know who the kid is. 
Is his name Lloyd? Yeah, Danny. He, Danny. He, he oh, plays, he plays. He, his character's name is Danny, and the actor's name is Danny. Okay. Yes, that's correct. All right. Yeah. Playing a, a, a lightly fictionized version of himself. Yeah. <laughs> In any event, uh, you can go ahead and congratulate me on my triumph on social media. <laughs> We're on Facebook at Aspiring Snobs, Twitter at Aspiring Snobs, Instagram at Aspiring Snobs. Please just pour, let those congratulations just pour in for me. Um, mm-hmm. I'll take any awards you have. Um, here's my home address if you want to send me a trophy. It is. <laughs> one, two, three, fake street. Yes. <laughs> yes, believe it or not, that's the one <laughs> That's the one person who lives in. Yep. <laughs> it's been getting mail for years. <laughs> but, uh, John, how else can people get in touch with us? Well, you could, if you have any questions or recommendations that we could leave, read live on air if you so choose, you can reach out to us directly at aspiringsnobs at gmail.com. Yes. And also, if you want to actually participate in this discussion, um, we do let you know the movie we're going to be watching when our new episode comes out in two weeks. And, Greg, it's, it's, we've been putting it off forever, but I think it's finally time now that you know it's going to be past January 20th and there can't be that many insurrections left. So I think it's finally time we revisit A Face in the Crowd. Yeah. I, again, I don't see why. I don't see how it has any implications uh, in today's world. But uh, sure, we'll, we'll go ahead and watch it. You and, you and I are, are kind of familiar with the storyline, but Again, we haven't seen this one. I think it's by Howard Hawks or Billy Wilder or something. And mm-hmm. it was the big breakout for one Andy Griffith. So. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's what everyone remembers him from, is the seething, you know, righteous political <laughs> dramas that he's known for. Yes. <laughs> he had a long, successful career, and that's all anybody can ask. So That's all, that's all we can ask. That's yeah. all Jesus asks for mm-hmm. you. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's all. That's all Jesus asks for us. He says, "Be successful." That's <laughs> make I lots, that's lots of money. Yeah, that's the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter fifty-eight. <laughs> Render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and the rest for me, baby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're good theologians. Anyway, yes. And there's no, nothing left to say, but thank you, everybody, for listening. Yes, and until next time, keep aspiring. What a fellowship! What a joy divine leaning on the everlasting arms what a blessedness what a peace is mine leaning on the everlasting